All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Now, I'm going to read this whole section. I can tell you right now, we will not cover all those verses that, that I'm going to read to you tonight. We'll get through maybe half of it. But uh, I'm excited about the things that God wants to bring out. Just kind of give you a little heads up as I start to read. Paul has been speaking in general about morality. He's now going to get specific. All right. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as you can see, there's a lot more than we'll have time to cover in the hour that we have tonight. But let's just kind of get started off here and realize, what's that first word again? <clears throat> therefore. Now, whenever the word therefore you have, is there, you want to find out what it's there for, right? Now, we're going to remind you where we've been. Paul has been talking to, uh, to us about the importance of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. We've been made new in, in our relationship with Christ. We've already looked at the last couple of weeks that we spent together. We were looking at the fact that living the Christian life is not us trying to do something in our strength, but actually turn, learning how to let Christ, who lives within us, live his life through us. And that is by faith and obedience to what he said, believing that God's going to do what he said he would do. Just in the same way in which we got saved, we didn't try to save ourselves. We probably tried before we got saved. But then we realized we can't save ourselves. We say, God, you have to give it to me. You have to do it. I believe that you will. And you trusted what he said about faith in Jesus Christ and him coming into your life and forgiving you of your sins and giving you righteousness. And you walked out of that encounter, believing that he had done what he said he would in the same way. Now, the Bible says that that's how we're to live. Colossians 2, 6. We've been reminding you of that over and over in the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, walk in him. And we're a new creation now we're, because of faith in Christ, because of God erasing our sins and coming to indwell us by his spirit. The Bible says that we are in Christ. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And I love how Paul starts off here. He says, therefore, with all that kind of stuff we've already just talked about, I love how he puts it next. Having put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. It's interesting how he words this here. He his, he says, look, I want you to be honest with each other. He doesn't start off by saying, I want you to be honest with each other. He says, having put away falsehood. Do you understand? You see what's going on here? He's assuming that there is a change that has occurred with us, that we need to see ourselves in this new light, in this new way. And we should not see ourselves like the rest of the world does. That's why he's back at the beginning. He says in verse 17 of chapter four, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or those who don't know God in the futility of their minds. And he talks about how they're darkened in their understanding and so on. And so I love how he says, having put away falsehood. Remember, does anybody remember a couple weeks ago when we had our last study, what we ended up with? Remember we ended up with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? And pretty much how he said after he rose them from the dead, he said, take off the grave clothes. Don't live like you used to live. You're a new person. You're a new creation. In the same way, this is kind of the picture here. Folks, if you're in Christ, 
falsehood should be put away. Now, we've already talked about the fact that we still struggle against this flesh. We still have the old nature, in a sense, because it's in our flesh, still there and will be with us till the day that we die, learning to let Christ live his life through us and give us the victories, this whole process. So he, he, he says, well, let me put it in other words. He says, now that we're a new creation, and you don't need to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if anyone's in Christ, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Since he says that we are in Christ, now that we're new creations, we know, now no longer use falsehood or lying as an acceptable tool in our everyday lives as the world does. Let, let's be honest. Is that not kind of how the world functions today? Deceit, a little twisting of the truth. It's just accepted. It's sad, but don't we even expect it of our government leaders? I mean, we, is there anybody that thinks our politicians always tell the truth? <laughs> Never. That's, that's, is that that point now where it's, it's, it's gotten so, it's the way it is in the world. But even now, we even don't even assume that anything that comes out of their mouth is the truth. But we don't realize, though, I heard someone say if their lips are moving. Right. Listen, but here's the sad thing. As much as this mentality of it's OK to lie a little. It's just how things get done is prevalent in the world and in our government. It's crept into the church. You don't realize how much that goes on. Years ago, actually, when I was in seminary in New Orleans, this is back in the early 90s. I actually uh, went to work while I was in seminary for this one man. He actually uh, was a Christian and he had started this uh, contracting business while he was in seminary. And he started making enough money that he actually didn't go into the ministry. He went into the contracting business. But he stayed there in New Orleans and he would hire seminary students to go to work for him doing re remodeling and painting and repairs and some things we would do. We would also, also uh, we would reshingle roofs and do all sorts of stuff. And his whole business was centered around, he had these advertisements that put a seminary student to work. In other words, people wanted, they figured they could trust this guy to come into their house and paint or whatever. And so he hired seminary students to be his employees. Well, I went to work for him painting and, and uh, then after a while he moved me up to salesman. Where I would actually, he actually had this call room where the people would make the phone calls, you know, hey, would you like this? Would you like that? And, and once people would, would, get a, would bite on these uh, calls, he would send some of us salesmen to their house to go try to sell them on a repair job. And one of the things that we would do, like I said, was re-shingle re roofs. And he actually, he would have us tell them that if we, if we are able to do the job, if you hire us, we'll give you free blown in insulation if we get to shingle your roof. Well, I also wasn't only the salesman, I also had to go bid the job. And I knew that we had been trained to calculate the blown in insulation into the price. And I told him, I said, I can't do that. He goes, why not? I said, because it's a lie. We can't tell them we'll give them free blown in insulation if you let us shingle your roof if it's not free. He goes, they don't know. I said, I understand, but it's still, it's not right. So he said, you need to come with me. And he put me in his Cadillac and he drove me around the streets of New Orleans as he gave me this lecture in his big Cadillac. This is what he said. He said, Jim, see this big Cadillac that I have? You know why I got this nice car? Because I have learned to separate my Christianity from my business. I said, wow, I will never do that. And he literally left me on the side of the road. Wow. He didn't work for me. 
I didn't work for him anymore. Here's the thing, folks. You got to understand that mindset is it's real prevalent. Having put away falsehood. Now, I'm going to show you in just a little bit. That's not because telling the truth is the Christian thing to do. It's deeper than that. It's way deeper than that. Having put a, well, let me put it to you how I wrote it in my notes here. We're different. We who are now in Christ and have Christ in us should no longer function in the way the world does, especially when it comes to honesty and truth telling in our dealing with each other and in our business practices. Now, if a Christian family or a Christian church is to be healthy, there needs to be trust. There needs to be honesty. There needs to be no suspicion, distrust or hostility. Yet in many families and in many of our churches, we don't trust each other. In many of cases, it's because we feel like we've been lied to. If you think back over the struggles you've had with people, the issue comes down to whether or not you think the person's been fully honest with you. And the sad thing is, like I just touched on, here he says, having put away falsehood, don't lie. Isn't that interesting? Why would he feel a need to say don't lie if you've already put away falsehood? Because we haven't. Oh, we should. And we have in the sense that we're a new creation. It's kind of like this. You remember back at the end of chapter five well, in Romans where you know, uh, Paul says, so we, we get so much grace. Should we go on sinning so we can get more grace? What was Paul's reaction to that? God forbid. No, we died to that way. So when he's saying having put away falsehood, it's a reminder of the fact of we are not like that anymore. We have. But that's why we have the daily renewing of our minds. That's why we have to daily, Romans 12, 1 and 2, lay our bodies on the altar as a living sacrifice. We have to, because our, like you've heard me say before, yes, God's mercies are new every morning. You know why God's mercies are new every morning? Because your flesh comes alive every morning. And we have to go through this process of realizing that isn't how I live anymore. Yes, ma'am. That's a, that's a good point. I like that. It's perfectly acceptable to lie in any situation that God can handle. I like that. Now, being honest, though, in all areas of our life, we'll begin to rebuild trust. And this is where we're going to head into, by the way, because what you just talked about, uh, Teresa, actually is tied to where we're going. And you'll see in Paul's study here. But being honest in all our areas of life, we'll begin to rebuild trust. But we don't do it because it's the Christian thing to do. We do it because it is who God is. And that's who's in us and who's we are. L let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Zechariah chapter 8. By the way, this is where actually Paul's quoting from. Zechariah chapter 8, really good, look at verses 16 and 17. Zechariah is one of those books right before Matthew. It's not right next to Matthew, but if you go to Matthew and back up, you'll find it fast. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And this is where Paul is quoting from when he says, speak the truth to one another. In verse 16 of Zechariah chapter 8, it says this. <clears throat> it says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And, no, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Why are we to speak the truth and not to cheat and be honest in our business practices and in all our aspects of life? Why? Because God hates it 
Oh, by the way, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but you do know what the Bible says about God and his ability to lie? He can't. He can't. It's not like he won't. He can't. The Bible says God who cannot lie. It's not that God is so righteous he won't lie. <laughs> he cannot lie. And because of the fact that we're in Christ and he's in us, we need to understand when we live from that side of who we are, that new creation, that new nature, the putting on the new man, that, that old mindset goes away. You're about to say, you said something, Becky. What was that? He is truth. He is truth. Go to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Look at verses 33 through 37. You're, you actually are dead on right with that. Listen, she says it's tied to, to taking the Lord's name in vain. We've always over the years thought that meant cussing. That's really not what the passage is talking about. When you who carry the name of Christ live in a, such a way that you don't live like Christ, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what in the context of that passage it really means. You know, it's kind of like when your kids live in a way that is not who you guys are and they keep walking around with your last name. They're taking that name in vain and that kind of a thing. That's kind of the picture of what God's talking about. But look what it says here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus is speaking and he says, Again, you have heard it was said that to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is of his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now let's take a little time to let this sink in here. Jesus is saying, you heard, don't, don't give an oath or swear falsely. I'm going to add to it and say, don't even make an oath. Don't say, I pinky swear. Don't say... Because whenever you feel like you need to say, I'm telling the truth this time. Do you see what I'm saying? What have you just said? I don't always tell the truth, but this time, this is something you scouts out there, you know what I'm talking about? This time, scouts on, or I swear on my mother's life or on my mother, you know what I'm talking about? Anything else than yes or no comes from evil. Folks, let me just tell you, if your yes is yes and your no is no, you don't got to say I pinky swear. You just speak and people will believe you. Actually, as I travel around the country and I deal with churches and especially I spend time with pastors, this is one of the things I spend some time spending with pastors on. Look, if you say you're going to be there at seven, be there at seven. Because there's a tendency in the pastorate for pastors to think it looks good that they're, oh, I've been so busy, I just made it, and all this kind of stuff. And I said, folks, how in the world do you ever expect that when you stand in the pulpit and say, thus says the Lord, that you want them to believe that what you're saying is true if they can't take what you say is true? You say you'll be there at seven, you be there at seven. You just be a man of your word. And folks, that's for all of us. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know how a lot of us as parents were taught to tell our kids when they were there a little, you know, we tell them to do something and they wouldn't listen. And we'd go one, two. You know what I'm saying? When we're, because of the fact that Becky and I had the privilege of being in ministry and helping shepherd people when we didn't have kids yet. We learned a lot of things before we had kids. And so by the time our kids came around, <laughs> they learned if we say one, you're, in trouble. you're already getting one spank. 
If we say two, you're getting two spanks. We get to three, don't even come home. I mean, because why? I wanted our kids to understand that when we said it then, we meant it then. Not when we said one, two, or three, then we meant it. Plus, for their own safety. Good grief, folks, if they're running across the street chasing the ball and the truck is coming, you don't got time to get to three. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, we can talk about falsehood and all this kind of stuff and telling the truth, but it, it all comes right back down to are you known as a man or a woman of your word? Are you known that what you say, they can, they can take it to the bank? Now, whenever you do a lesson on telling the truth, there's always gonna be the question, what if my wife asked me if her dress makes her look fat? <laughs> or what if my boss asks me if I like his idea or his tie? What do I do then? And we all want to know the rule. We all want to know the, what is the legal, where do I, folks, you're in a relationship with a living God who the Bible says he will give you the words that you're to speak at the moments that you speak them. And let me just add this to you. And then we're going to look at something in John chapter 17. If you are known to be loving and considerate as well as honest, then your heart will be known as a part of your response. I'm going to say that to you again. See, it's more than just being brutally honest. There are those people who say, well, I'm just brutally honest. Well, qu quick, look at Ephesians chapter 4 again and look at verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, look at what it says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good, building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see it? You can't just say, well, I'm just brutally honest. Well, there's a lot more than just being honest here in this passage. And like I said before, if you are known to be loving and considerate as well as honest, then your heart will be known as a part of your response. If you say, honey, it kind of does. She'll know that you're not being mean or trying to hurt her feelings because you have proven you love and you're considerate and they'll take it for what it is. On top of that, let me, let me show you how Jesus dealt with this kind of a thing. Go to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Sorry, not John chapter 17. My brain just shut off. It's actually, it's chapter 19. John chapter 19. All right, now I'm going to get you in the right place. It's chapter 18. Thank you. <laughs> That's what happens when you, when you go from your memory and your memory starts to go. All right. I like that. that. I'm going to save that one. That was pretty good. That wasn't even intentional. You go from your memory and your memory starts to go. Someone write that down. All right. John chapter 18. Look at verse 33. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then, of course, as you know, Pilate walks out. But look closely. Is Jesus playing word games here? Is Jesus trying to be funny? Is he just trying to avoid the question? No. He's speaking truth, but he's also, in that instance, speaking the truth that needed to be spoken at that time. Sometimes the Spirit of God will show you there are things that you could say, yes, I'm the king. Yes, they're going to kill me. Yes, all this stuff, this has all been ordained by my father. He could have said a lot of stuff that was the truth, but it wasn't at that time the truth that the father wanted him to speak. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're in a right relationship and you know how to listen to the Spirit and be sensitive to the Spirit of God within you, don't worry about what is the Christian response when you get... We, keep, we spend too much time in our Sunday school classes looking for the legalistic loophole and how far is sin and, and what about this and what about should a lady wear makeup and all these kinds of things. We were looking for the rule to move us out of the relationship of being led of the Spirit into a set of following Christian regulations. Folks, you don't live like that because that's the Christian thing to do. You live in honesty and truth because it's who you are and who's in you. And let me just tell you, in those times when you get into those conundrums, the Spirit of God will show you what is the truthful answer for that situation. Do you understand? Too often we try to say, just give me the rules and I'll go try to be a good Christian. You, yeah, that's not what we're talking about here. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And see how this whole putting away falsehood continues. In verse 26, it says, Be angry and don't sin, and then don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Paul is not commanding people here to be angry. He's actually warning against anger being allowed to cause one to sin. Actually, if you were to take the time and look at how the Greeks put together here, a good translation of this would be, if and when you get angry, because that's going to happen. It's not a sin to be angry. But if and when you get angry, don't sin. Now, if you know any people in this world, there's different ways that people get angry. Some people are the boom, explosion. I mean, they get the short fuse anger and they end up sinning sometimes with their words because of their explosive anger in that sense. Others, there are those who fester they, they brew and they, they let it just simmer. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about y'all. Maybe in your marriages, one's one way and one's the other. Typically, that's how it works. I've got permission to share this because I asked her ahead of time <laughs> for fear of her explosive temper. No. Um, <laughs> Put on the whole armor. <laughs> Put on the whole armor. <laughs> Becky and I learned early then we're not always going to agree. And even in our dating life, as we were seeking to be led of the Spirit, we had to realize, all right, what is God teaching us in this situation? There are sometimes, I don't know why, because I'm perfect, but I make Becky so mad. <laughs> I made Becky so mad that there are times she just said, I got to get away from you right now. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of these ones, though, but once, once it's, once for her, once it's there, she can get over it. Me? It bothers me. And it stays and stays and stays. And I have a hard time letting go of stuff. And Paul here is speaking to both. He says, when you get angry, 
And you're going to get angry sometimes. Don't sin. Oh, and also for those of you that don't blow up, but you're still angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'm going to give you four simple rules that Becky and I learned early that will help you. Now, again, this isn't you got to do it this way, but these are principles. I guess the words were rules, not a good word. Principles is a better word. Four simple principles that helped us because of how we both handled anger differently, helped us be obedient to the spirit of God, yet at the same time kept us from sinning. Our first principle was we weren't allowed to run away from the other person when we were angry. Because that's not going to solve anything by just getting apart yet. We also understood that it was necessary to spend time apart. So the first principle was you can't just take off. Second principle was you had to set a time, though, that you would be apart. It's not good for us to be in the same room right now. We may sin. (laughs) We can't just run away and then wonder when we're going to deal with this. When those time came, we would say, Okay, we will not be in the same room for the next two hours. That gave us all, by the way, time for each of us to spend time talking to the Lord. We would also, uh, sorry, third principle, we would set an exact time when we would be back together to discuss it. Sometimes it was when the kids were in bed or whatever, but we would set a time when we would get back together to deal with the issue. And the fourth principle is this. You can't go to bed until it's resolved. And I can honestly tell you, after 23 years of marriage, it's been a wonderful thing how God, His Spirit, has been showing us through these principles from God's Word how to handle those situations. You can't just run off. You set a time that you're going to be apart to let the Spirit speak. You set a time when you will get together to speak about it and to deal with it. And you can't go to bed until it's resolved. And folks, God's Word's true. You see, like I told you at the beginning, Paul has been dealing generally about morality. Now he's getting real specific, getting real specific. And you'll find, let me give you an example. Years ago, uh, when we were in uh, Chicago and Becky was pregnant with AJ, it's hard to believe a kid that size was ever inside of her. (laughs) We had just bought a new van. It wasn't new, but it was new to us. It was a used Ford Windstar. But... They had literally just gotten it at their lot on the day we showed up. And I'm one of these people that I don't like to buy cars and be worked over and all this stuff. So I had this plan set up that I would go to all the dealerships in town. And I left Becky and the kids in the car with the, with the car running. And I'd walk in and I'd say, here are my rules. I said, I want to know if you have any vehicles that we're looking for of this kind of vehicle with this many miles for this price or less. And I said, all I want to know is yes or no on those questions. Well, let's take a look at, give us your driver's license. I'd say, thank you very much. Because I knew what they were going to do is check my credit. My credit's awesome. But at the same time, they weren't willing to play by my rules. I'd walk out of the dealership and they'd start chasing me. I'd get in the car. We'd go to the next one. I'd say, okay, here are my rules. I want to know if you have any of these kind of vehicles, this many miles, this much or less. Well, let's see what, now, let's see what we can do. Now, answer the question. Well, we have to see it. We ended up at the Ford dealership. I walked in. The guy didn't even hardly look up from the desk. He said, one just came in yesterday. He said, I'll sell you that one right there for that price. So we bought it. But because of the fact that it had just come in, they weren't able to get the title stuff taken care of. So we drove it off the lot and went home. Like two days later, we, my wife and I are sitting at home at the house, and it was lunchtime. And 
eating some sandwiches, and the dealership called and said, hey, we got your title, come on in and get it. So I quickly left our lunch, jumped in the van, it was less than a mile from there to the dealership, drove there, signed all the paperwork, and as I'm pulling out of the dealership, I got into the worst accident of my life. Thank the Lord I was okay, but all five people in the other vehicle ended up in the ambulance. And this vehicle that we had just bought was destroyed driving out of the lot. And I'm standing there humiliated. At this point in my life, I've never had an accident in my life. I'm standing on the side of the road with all the police and the fire department, and it's a major intersection, and everybody's walking, driving by, doing this, you know, and I'm standing there humiliated. Finally, when everything's all said and done, I actually was able to still drive this car. It did not look good. We, I limped it home. I pulled it in the garage and put the door down. This is before cell phones. So I come back in, and Becky goes, what took so long? And I'm like, oh, I've been in an accident. She goes, what? And she quickly runs by me saying, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, and, and so she runs by me and she goes straight to the garage. She opens the door and she looks and she starts with the pregnancy hormones bawling about this car. Well, I got mad. I got mad. Because all of a sudden I feel like she cares more about this car than she does me. And I start letting her know. Uh, you know I asked you if you were all right. You said you were fine. <laughs> We had to quickly decide, okay, principle number one, no running off. But we also can't be in the same room right now. And I went back to the church. I lived in the parsonage. Next, we were living in the parsonage door of the church. I went back to the church, and we agreed that that afternoon, about four, when the kids were napping, we'd come back together. And that whole time that we were apart, the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart. And he said, Jim, you're mad at her because she didn't notice what you didn't tell her. You see, at the time, I was embarrassed, ashamed, humiliated, felt like a bad provider. And I came back in acting all, it's under control, it's been an accident, no big deal. And I was mad at her because she didn't know what I was keeping from her. But it was the time apart that allowed the Spirit to speak to my heart so that when we got back together, we were able to talk and she said, Jim, I'll be honest with you, you look like everything was under control. And you know what, I, I look back at that major, major episode and because we, in our anger, didn't sin. And we also didn't let the sun go down. God was able to take that into actually a growth time in our marriage where we had to learn to help each other understand what's going on beneath the surface. She has had many times over the years helped me to try to understand what's going on beneath the surface. Folks, you do realize that God's word actually helps us deal with this stuff? Well, let's keep going. Resentment is the poison you drink hoping the other person will die. I'm going to say it again. Resentment is the poison you drink hoping the other person will die. When Paul talks about don't giving uh, way to the devil, the devil or the foothold to the devil, go back here in Ephesians 4. Look what it says again. He says, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry or when you're angry, don't sin and don't let the sun go down in your angry and, and give no opportunity to the devil. Actually, the word devil could be translated the slanderer. slanderer. That's literally what it says. You see, because many times our anger turns to slander as we try to verbally harm one whom we're angry at. I don't know about you, but 
we don't even realize it half the time, but subconsciously we have a tendency to kind of talk other people down. And when you're doing it, you're actually giving way to the slanderer. Let all your speech be speech that builds up and gives grace to the hearer. You ever notice how Jesus dealt with Judas? Did anybody ever look closely? Did Jesus know that Judas was a deceitful person? Sure. Did, he called him friend and kissed him. He continued to offer him grace, continued to offer him grace, continued to offer him grace. Folks, if we really understand that having put away falsehood, we're just going to be straight up and open and honest. And we're going to get to, Teresa, keep that in mind, what you shared, because this all ties back to whether or not we think God can handle it. Dishonesty also reveals itself not only in our speech, but also in our actions. That's why Paul also goes on to say that the thief is to no longer steal. You see, in our daily lives, in our jobs, this is an easy way to shine, folks. When others are trying to do as little as possible, we can give our employers the best. Give them, give them our best. Go with me to Colossians. You're in Ephesians. Go over um, two books to the book of Colossians. Look at chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 22 through 20, uh, 25. Did I say Ephesians? I'm sorry. Thank you. Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. I don't know if you see what's, the, what's below the surface of all this. He's saying, look, you slaves, and that's what he was writing to at the time. You know, we don't see a whole lot of slavery nowadays. And people say, well, that ties to your employer. And yes, this principle definitely applies. But keep in mind who he was writing to. He was writing to slaves. People who were actually slaves. Owned by the other person. Mistreated sometimes, maybe many times. And he says, look, don't give eye service or try to do it when they're looking. You do it as you're serving the Lord. Because God is watching. And He will reward you. And He'll take care of any wrong that's being done. And how often do we say, well, my boss is cheating me, so I don't mind cheating him back a little. How often has that mindset crept in? Folks, we've put away falsehood, not only in our speech, but also in our conduct. When we steal property or time, we're actually making a statement about our view of God. We're actually saying that God cannot or will not provide for us and that we don't trust Him. We feel we need to take care of our own needs. I'm going to read it to you again. This is the real issue. This is why I was so glad that you brought that out, Teresa, because honestly, all this about putting away falsehood, the only way you're going to get there is not say, well, I need to do it this way. No, no, no. The way you're going to get there is to fully trust God. And when you steal property or time or feel you need to lie to try to get something, you're actually making a statement about your view of God. You're actually saying that God cannot or will not provide for you and that you don't trust him and that you feel you need to take care of your own needs. This is actually something that God's been doing in our family's life as he's been trying to teach us when it comes to all aspects, including our finances. Has God not already said that he would provide all of our needs? 
So we're striving now to live as if we have everything we need. Oh, by the way, when you have that mindset, you're going to be generous. When you have that mindset, you're not going to worry when the next car bill comes in and <laughs> we're there. That van story I've been telling you about, the saga continues and it's at its second car repair shop today. But you know what? We literally are cool because God's doing something and something neat has happened when over the years we used to be like worrying about the pennies of, oh, how much have we spent so far? I cannot tell you how much we've spent so far and I don't worry about how much we've spent so far because we've already experienced that God will take care of us. It's interesting. Out of the blue, we get a check in the mail two days ago from these people that they wrote to us for six hundred dollars. Guess how much today's car repair is going to cost? Six hundred dollars. But God actually gave us the money before the guy even told us what it was going to be. Folks, let me just tell you. We at the point now where we're actually growing in our walk with him, where we're not worried about how much have we spent. We just do what he's asked us to do. We trust him. It's a vehicle we need. Let's just pay what needs to be done. God will take care of us. Now, there's a difference between, hey, let's go crazy. No, no, no. God will he'll teach you all about that, too. But the whole issue is this. If you have all that you need, because he says you have all that you need and will have all that you need, live like you have all that you need. Oh, that'll keep you from owning things you don't need. There was a thing I saw years ago where this big billboard was on the side of the road and it was outside this piece of property and it says, uh, I will give this land to anybody who is totally content. If there's anybody out there that's totally content, I'll give you my piece of property. Well, this guy drove by and he's multimillionaire. He thought there can't be anybody more content than me. I got everything I can imagine. I'm the guy. So he pulls up to the guy's house and he says, hey, I'm the guy that meets the sign. And he says, what do you mean? He said, well, your sign said if, uh, if you're totally content, you'd give me the property. He says, I'm about as content as anybody can be. I want the property. He says, if you're totally content, why do you want my property? <laughs> if, you have, if you believe you have all that you need, you're going to find yourself not worrying about wanting more. You're going to be willing to be generous because you really believe God's got. Oh, and guess what? You won't need to lie. You'll, need to pay, you'll be willing to pay whatever it is. If they give you the wrong change back, you'll have no trouble handing it back to them. If you find money that wasn't yours, you got no issue with taking it to the authorities. All these things, instead of trying to find out what is the Christian thing to do, it literally will actually flow out of you. You won't be living by the rules. You'll be living by the Spirit because you put away falsehood. What you see is what you get. Hopefully, you under, those of you who know me long enough to know, the same gym that's here in the pulpit is going to be the same gym that you're going to see on the street. Because I've learned, I don't want to worry about what I just said and which lie I just told and who I told it to. It's all out there. And that's actually a free way to live. It's a free way to live. Look at what Paul's saying here about work, though. This is pretty cool. Go back to Ephesians and look at what he says here about work. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's actually a lot right here. There's a ton. First thing I want you to see is this. Paul elevates manual labor. I'm going to show you a couple other places that he does the same thing. He actually elevates the, the manual labor. We have a tendency to look down on manual labor. But actually, Paul elevates it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verses 9 through 12. 
Now concerning brotherly love, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and what? Be dependent on no one. That's going to be important because you're going to see this, 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 this principle coming out here. Paul says, look, be willing to live a quiet life, work with your hands. How, over the years, how many times have you kind of looked down on the guy that was collecting the trash or looked down on the person who was working at Disney, picking up the, the, behind the horses or whatever? But how many other times over your life have you, in the midst of the stress of your job, thought, wouldn't it be nice to go walk behind the horse and just pick up the stuff? And wouldn't it be nice to just have my, you know what I'm saying? There's actually, there's a benefit to it. There's, there, he just elevates manual labor. Second Thessalonians, go to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Again, not being dependent on anyone. It was not because we don't have that right. In other words, because of our role in the ministry, God has designed it that there are people who will pay for and support those who are in the ministry. You know how the Bible says the worker in the ministry is worthy of double honor. You know, don't muzzle the ox, all that. The Bible actually talks about the fact that God, it's okay for people to be supported by people giving to people who are in the ministry. He goes, not that we didn't have that right. We could have. But in the purpose of what God was doing in this situation, he wanted us to imitate to you the life that we want you to live. It was not because we didn't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul's elevating not only manual labor, but he's doing it for a couple other reasons. One, so that you won't be dependent on anyone. That you won't be expecting other people to take care of you. Because who are we ultimately dependent on? God. We're ultimately dependent on God. And God has said, here's how I want you to show that you trust me. Go work. Well, God, I want a big paying job. I mean, I want my kids to be able to get good degrees and good careers. And I want them to make lots of money. I want them to be able to have nice things. So God will take care of the people who have better educations more than he will those who don't. Be careful. Now, there's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with bettering in that sense. But, folks, we got to understand what is the reason behind why you're pursuing these things? Is it because deep down you don't think God will take care of you? And you got to be careful you don't start looking down on those whom God has chosen to work. Aren't you glad there are people that serve you in the restaurant? 
Aren't you glad there are people that come by your house twice, two or twice a week and pick up your stuff? <laughs> you wouldn't like it if there weren't none of them. God's designed it all to function. Have a mindset that the person in this position or in this position, don't you want your government leaders and those in authority to have a mindset that says I'm dependent on God? All the way across the board, the issue comes back to who are you trusting? Who are you trusting? Are you thinking you have to help God because he's not able to take care of you? And he, that's the whole point about being dependent. He also goes on and says there's another reason. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've read in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, now the next book, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 8. First Timothy five, verse eight says, but if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we got we got we got to, we got to see something because all this, by the way, is heading back to Ephesians chapter four, because there's something that Paul says in Ephesians four that we haven't even got to yet. But I want to kind of lay this foundation out for you so you understand where we're going. So far, we've already seen from Paul's teaching, God's teaching through Paul here in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and also in 1 Timothy, that there's a couple of reasons why God wants us to work. One, so that we won't be dependent on anyone. We won't expect other people to take care of us, but we'll actually just do what God says and we trust Him, whatever job it is that we have, even if it's working with our hands, that God will take care of us. On top of that, He actually has designed that we would be intentionally looking to take care of our own family and making sure our family is taken care of. Again, be careful. Because there's a balancing act there where all of a sudden I've had too many husbands say to me, oh, well, God expects me to take care of my family. No, 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 that's not what the Bible says. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, God says to the nation of Israel, when you go into the promised land, don't you think for a second that your right arm or your strength or your right hand has gotten you this wealth because it's God who determines whether or not you make money. Any of you got money in the stock market? You'll know what I'm talking about. You have no control over whether or not you make money. Oh, I make good decisions. Careful. Careful. We're to work so that we won't be dependent on anybody but God. Whatever job it is he's got us to do, trust him to pay your bills. He will. Just do what it is. If he wants you to move up, he'll show you that, all that. Secondly, we're to do it so that we will be seeking to look after our family and not expect someone else to take care of it. And trust me, I, I, I'm not trying to get political here, but are we not? in a mess right now because of these truths here that we're ignoring? Yeah, Have we not developed a whole society of dependency yeah. and handouts and someone else is supposed to do it? Yeah. I was in Romania last September, two Septembers ago and I was in this little neighborhood of a bunch of gypsies and there's a bunch of men during the day just all standing around. And the neighborhood is a small little neighborhood, but they had a beautiful little brook running through the town and the trash was everywhere. And I said, guys, as we're all standing there and I'm talking to these men through a translator, why don't we all get a bunch of trash bags? So what I said, let's get a bunch of trash bags. And with this many men, we can like in an hour have this beautiful. And they all started doing this. And, uh, I asked the guy who was from there who spoke both languages, what's the problem? He said, you're embarrassing them. I said, why? He said, because the mindset in this culture is if they let it get bad enough, the government will send somebody in to take care of it. And I thought, oh, baby. But there's another reason why. God wants us to work. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Look again at this verse, verse 28 again. Let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? Here's the third reason, not just so you don't be dependent, but also so you provide for your family and not expect someone else to do it, but also so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that interesting? Actually, one of the greatest reasons why God wants us to work is so that we would be willing and able to meet the needs of others. But how many, and I'll get right to you, Ron, how many people, though, their mindset is, I can't afford to. You've just made your statement about how you view God. You really don't think that he's able to take care of you. You really don't think that his word is true. And you aren't willing to do it because you think, I've got to take care of myself. Go ahead. I know where your question is, but I want you to ask it anyway. What's the capital of South Dakota? Bismarck. I gave you North Dakota for the fun of it, but go ahead. So it sounds I never knew that the opposite of stealing was serving, giving. You got it. That's amazing. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I thought it was not stealing. No. <laughs> the opposite of not stealing is not I mean, sorry, the opposite of stealing is not, not stealing. The opposite of not stealing, sorry, of stealing is giving away. And here, and this is the real issue here. If, well, I want you to see it. We got time. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm pretty sure it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, but again, going from my memory again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Exactly, it doesn't belong to us. Look closely at what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says here. Paul says, we want you to know, the wind blew my page shut here, uh, starting in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as, as he had started, so should he complete this among you, this act of grace. But then he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in love for you, see that you also excel, excel in this grace also. What grace? The grace of giving. They were in extreme poverty, but because of their love for the Lord, their trust in the Lord, their dependence on the Lord, they gave out of their means and beyond their means. Why? Because if we really, really, really believe God's going to take care of us, you're willing to just say, here. What about you? I'm taken care of. I'm taken care of. And if you really believe that, folks, and trust me, I know, I've been there. I, I still am human, and I, there are times when I have those waves of fear when the latest bill or episode comes, and we all have that. But ultimately, if you go back to, no, I trust him. If he says to be generous, I'm going to be generous. And we think we've done well when we go in our closets and give all the stuff that doesn't fit. Don't we? We think, oh, we've given our leftovers. And we're good Christians. Oh, folks, you still don't get it. You're being generous by giving something you don't need. How about giving what you need? And then trusting that God will take care of your need. He sure is. He'll give us every grace we need for anything he asks us to do. 
And we're going to stop here for tonight. But the the issue is this. By the way, meeting someone's need doesn't necessarily make them dependent on you. But it does give you an opportunity to share God's love for them and your trust in God. We're no longer living for self like we used to. Because now we have a loving, generous father. And we trust him. Folks, I don't, I don't know about you, but th that phrase, putting away all falsehood, is really starting to reverberate in my heart. And I wanted to just spend some time meditating on that. Putting away all falsehood. And that ultimately means I trust God. I don't need to connive. I don't need to finagle. I don't know about you, but did you ever take a look at Jacob and his life? Oh, God had already made a promise before he was born that the older would serve the younger. And as you know, Esau was born first. But even in the womb, he was grasping his brother's heel to try to get out first. And then later on, even though God had already made the promise when it was time for the blessing, what did he do? He finagled, he connived, he pretended to be somebody he wasn't to try because he really didn't think God was going to take care of him and mom wasn't helping much either. Then later on, he ends up running for his life from his brother who's trying to kill him and he ends up working for this guy Laban. And it's interesting that he goes to work for a guy that's going to trick him just like he's been tricking people. Isn't that ironic? But even then, that situation, as he seeks for God's provision, he's still thinking God needs some help when the way he marks up the goats. And on the way back, because God says, I want you to go back. On the way back, he finds out that his brother Esau is on the way to greet him, and there's 400 men with him. And this is what Jacob prays. You can go double check it later on in the story there in Genesis. He prays this prayer. God, deliver me from my brother. And then the scripture says, and then he thought, perhaps maybe I can send my, everybody out in waves. <laughs> and if the one wave gets attacked, the other one can get away. And he even sends his wives and his children in front of him. And when he's finally sent them across the brook, he's there alone. And the Bible says that he wrestled with somebody. We know now it was God. And in that wrestling match, Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God asks Jacob an interesting question. He says, what's your name? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but when's the last time someone said to Jacob, who are you? It was when he was standing before his daddy pretending to be Esau. And his whole life, even though God had made promises, he didn't think that God could do it without his help. And we all are that way. Oh, God, help me in this situation. Well, maybe if I have a garage sale. Maybe if I get an extra job. We've all been there, haven't we? Was Jacob's wrestling with God a literal wrestling match or a spiritual wrestling match? The answer is yes. The physical wrestling match was just something God was using to teach him a spiritual point. Let me, let me tell you what's going on in your life right now. You're going through some type of a wrestling match that is physical. It may be health. It may be relationship. It may be financial. It is something going on. God is using it to shape you right now. And it is real and it is physical and you're in that situation. But you know what? The real issue is spiritual. Are you going to stop wrestling 
with God. By the way, when God said to Jacob, what is your name? Do you know what his name meant? Usurper, deceiver, conniver. And then God says, you have wrestled with God and with men. You have felt like you had to make it work. From that point on, God touched his hip, put it out of joint, and he walked the rest of his life with a limp, which was a blessing to remind him. It's not in my own strength anymore. I can't hardly walk. What does Paul say? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, a thorn in my flesh was given to me to torment me. And three times I said, God, take this away. And God says, no, it's there for a reason. My grace is sufficient. And Paul says, therefore, I will embrace it. And I will rejoice in my weakness because when I'm weak, he is strong. It's reminding me of my dependence on him. Folks, every one of us are in this situation in one way or another. Ultimately, God's trying to say, do you trust me? And he already knows whether you do or you don't. And he ain't mad when he's pointing out to you that you don't. But he's going to put you in that situation where you got no choice. We've put away all falsehood. We don't need to finagle in our speech. We don't need to finagle in our practice and our work or anything. We trust God and we go to work and we trust God to pay the bills. That turns manipulation into a bad word, doesn't it? It does turn manipulation into a bad word. Manipulation is a bad word. So yes, yeah. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you so much for the way in which your word will just speak to us. If we'll take the time to walk through it and let your spirit bring it to life. And it's already alive in that sense. But I guess in my, what I mean by that is in the sense of in our hearts. We see the reality and the depth of what's going on. Lord, I thank you for what Ron shared at the end there about the, the opposite of stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is, is giving. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the fact that there's so much here. And Lord, as we little by little renew our minds, be renewed in the spirit of our minds and Daily practice the putting off of the old way and the flesh that's still there and the way that the world functions and be renewed in the spirit of our minds. You begin to reveal yourself in miraculous ways that we can't even explain, even providing for our financial needs before they even arise. As you show your power. Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you for what you did in Neil's life. We thank you for what you're doing in ours. We pray this in your name. Amen.